we have a green light. That means you guys aren't getting a short message this morning, even if you were hoping for it. Ready to buckle up here. Hallelujah. Well, are you guys ready for the word this morning? Let's pray as we come to it. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your great love and your goodness. Father, I thank you this morning that you would open up our eyes, that you would open up our ears, we would receive what you have for us, Father, that it would not fall on rocky or unfurlowed soil, but it would fall on fertile soil, Father, that it would produce much fruit in our lives. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So today we're going to go ahead and get started into our next portion of Romans. It's Romans part 17, and I've entitled it On Whom He Wills. So last chapter, as Joseph was ministering, we saw that uh, we had a look at, at what it was like to be adopted into God's family as sons, and as such, we enjoy uh, all being an heir to, to, to that, what that entails. We are an heir with Christ to the kingdom of heaven. But over the next three chapters, as we look at uh, chapter 9, 10, and 11, we're going to see kind of what appears to be a slight shift. We just went from speaking of salvation and being heirs to the kingdom, and now we're going to switch to a section that really deals with the nation of Israel. And it might seem strange when we would make such a shift from salvation and being an heir to the kingdom to just talking about the nation of Israel, but it's actually just a continuation of Paul's argument for justification by faith. How many of that's a good thing, justification by faith? I don't know about you guys, but if it was left up to me to save myself, I'd be in a world of hurt. And I have a sneaking suspicion you'd be in the same boat. Hallelujah. But if you recall, in chapter 8, as we were going through that, if a person places their faith in Jesus, their election and their salvation is secure. That's it. You put your faith in Jesus, you're saved. That's all it is. Nothing that you do, none of your performance, not, not anything about you, who your parents are, um, where you work, none of that stuff matters is if you place your faith in Jesus. Romans eight twenty eight through 30, as uh, Joseph read last week, says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the reality is, is that, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today, um, but the reality is, is that we've all been predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters into the kingdom of heaven. There's not some sub-slice of people that are going to make it into heaven one day, and there's some sub-slice that, that uh, no matter what they do, they just don't have a chance. It's not actually what it talks about. The reality is, is that we've all been predestined as adoption, as sons and daughters. The problem is, is that there are just so many people who are running away as fast as they can from their destiny. So then we have to wonder if this is such a different section, if this is such a different part of what we've been dealing with, why is this section even in here in the first place? And the reality is, is that when, you're, when Paul's making these arguments, some might begin to ask, but wait a minute, you're telling me that the Gentiles are now getting salvation? I thought the Jews were God's chosen people. They might ask, if they're God's chosen people, then why is God leaving them behind? Why does it appear God is, is leaving them behind and, and just... Moving on, why is he setting them aside? Did God or is God going to keep his promises to them? 
But the reality is, is this line of question is an attack against Paul. This line of questioning is actually an attack against God's character. They're asking, is God going to do what he said he was going to do? So to begin these next three chapters, Paul's actually going to begin with God's sovereign choice, his election, which is a tough subject. Matter of fact, there are denominations that do believe that um, this idea of election is that only certain people are going to make it into heaven. And if you've been elected by God, you're getting in no matter what. And if you haven't been elected, there's nothing you can do to get in. And that's why it's a tough subject, because if you read into this stuff incorrectly, you can come up with incorrect conclusions. And all of a sudden, we have a God who is not really a God you want to serve. And then also, this chapter, Paul is really dealing with the Jews' grand objection. And their objection was that the rejection of the Jews and the inclusion of the Gentiles was actually, in contrast, the Word of God. But ultimately, what we find is that God's election is not in contrast to His Word because God can't lie. He can't change his mind. Ultimately, what they were trying to do is tell God what he could and couldn't do. The Jewish people were dealing with pride because they thought that God only cared for them. And their jealousy over a God that would show his affection to another. And finally, they thought that the Gentiles were not worthy of God. And we can stand up here and we can go, oh, those crazy people, why would they think that way? But the reality is, is that we're no different. We do the same stuff all the time. Sometimes we do it with God, and sometimes we do it with other things. Sometimes we want to tell God how he can run stuff. Anybody ever wanted to tell God how things should go? Yeah, I, I, uh, I've tried to tell God how I wanted things to go in my life. And actually, I think I found the secret now. Because what happened was, is, is I wanted to, uh, to plant a church and my my first goal was we were going to plant a church in, in uh, uh, northwest Tucson, actually right in the same area that we were looking at, we we're actually at now. But when we started to plant, our pastors and, and uh, uh, God spoke, I don't even know God speaks to you through your leaders. And they said, you know what, we want you to plant in Casa Grande. And we're like, well, that's not really what we want to do, so, but we'll do it. And then God said, I want to plant, I want you to plant in a, in a, in a house church, start in your house. And I was like, God, I don't think you understand. I wouldn't even go to a house church, let alone plant one, let alone start one. God, let me tell you how we should do it. Here's how what I think we should do. Let's come into the part of town that I want to go to, and let's get the building that I want to get in the place. But every time I tell God that I won't do something, matter of fact, this all started when I was a teenager. I was attending church. My best friend's dad, he was a pastor, and I said, I actually said these words. I said, Josh, I appreciate what your dad does but I could never be a pastor. I've learned, I stopped telling God what I want to do, or actually I'm clever now. I'm like, God, I will never start a mega church in Hawaii. I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> not going to do it. But I, I, th I think he's on to me. So, <laughs> But the truth is, is we do the same thing. We try to tell God how God should run things. And even in, in life, we do that. I mean, there are actually entire movies and stories written about people who who want something to the point that if, if they can't have it, nobody can have it. We always want to determine how things will run. And even nowadays, we quickly determine who we want to witness to. We look at somebody and we think that maybe they're not worthy or they're unkempt, and we're like, well, maybe I won't invite them to church. 
we think to ourselves, would God actually want someone like that or someone who would do those sorts of things? The truth is, is that are we concerned that if God gives his blessing to somebody else that maybe we're missing out? You see, the Jews did a lot of things wrong, but we can't be too quick to judge them because we all do the same stupid things probably more often than we like to admit. So let's go ahead and get started in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So as Paul begins this argument, he begins to go down this line of reasoning. The first thing he has to do is assure them, and he's speaking to the Jewish people, that he is telling the truth. He wants them to know that he's not lying. He's not trying to pull the wool over their eyes. And he also says that this is in Christ. as I'm speaking the truth in Christ. And the reality is, is what Paul is demonstrating here is an incredible act of love. He's willing to uh, sacrifice himself for others. And he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, and, and the, the, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, is that it's impossible to love like this without God. It is impossible to have this kind of care for somebody without God. Actually, 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Now, we wouldn't even know how to love properly if we didn't see it demonstrated in God. And the reason that he had to make this assertion is that to the traditional Jew, he was a heretic at this point. They hated him and what he was preaching. But not only did he still care and love for those who hated him so vehemently, he was willing to give up his eternity, his eternal life, that they might come to know Jesus. And the truth is, is this isn't a unique attitude. And the people of God, Moses, had the very same attitude. In Exodus 32, 30 through 32, it says, The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people has, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the problem is, is it's not really how it works. We don't get to, to take on the sins of somebody else. We don't get to have faith for somebody else. God didn't allow Paul to trade himself, and neither did he allow Moses to trade himself. But this characteristic of Paul, this great love that he has, is one that amazes me. Every time that I read his letters, it's the same thing that I aspire to, is to have a heart like this. And I encourage all of you to have a heart like Paul had for his people. To love others so much that you would sacrifice beyond measure for them. You know, some of us may have a heart like that for our children, that we'd be willing to give something up for them. But not many of us would be willing to do the same for those who stay in the park on Speedway and stone there. The ones that are considered unlovely, unlovable, unworthy by society. And Paul just doesn't have this heart to, 
to the Jews, he has his heart to believers as well. In Philippians 1, through 24, he says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary to your account. Paul wanted to go be with Jesus, but he cared about the people that he was serving enough that he would stay. And I often ask myself as I read this, do I have a heart like this? Would I give up my salvation in order that the world might be saved? This is a tough question. One that kind of terrifies me a little bit. Because if I made that statement, I would be a little afraid God would say, okay, you're the one that I'm going to let do it. And then I might want to back out. That's a terrifying question. Do I love people like that? See, some of the questions that I think that we should ask ourselves is, do we hurt for those who don't know Jesus? When you see somebody on the street that doesn't know Jesus, do you just walk on by and don't think anything about it? Or does your heart hurt for them knowing that they're lost, they have no hope? Do we have a longing to reach out to them or would we much rather just go about our daily lives and hit our I went to church on Sunday morning checklist? Do we have a concern not only for their physical well-being but also their spiritual well-being even at our own risk? You know, one thing that I pray is that God would give me a heart like that, that I would see with his eyes, that I would feel with his heart. And he goes on and Verse 4, he says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Before we really get into what Paul's saying here, I wanted to point something out. How many of you guys know that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man? Jesus was God in the flesh. Jesus wasn't just a person. He was deity. He was God. And there are many places in Scripture that describes this and talks about this, or you can infer from the Scripture that this is true, but this is one portion that just flat out says it. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. You might say, well, Wayne, maybe this is a weird translation, or maybe this, they, they misspoke. So one of the things that I like to do when I'm studying the Bible, if there's something that I'm reading and I'm like, I don't know quite what it's saying, and this is a trick, you should write this down. This is an easy one. Look it up in other translations and see how they've translated it. Usually when you have multiple translations, you can infer what is actually being said. But here's what the New King James Version says. He says, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. New Living Translation translates it like this, and he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And people that doubt that blows my mind because it's very clear to me in the Scripture. But that's not really what we're talking about today. That's just a little side note. Write it in your Bible if anybody has any questions. Now you have it in black and white that Jesus was, in fact, God. Among other things, the the disciples fell down and worshipped him, and he never told them to get up. He never stopped anybody else. If somebody falls down and worshipped him, even angels say, get up, I'm just another servant like you. 
when Stephen was stoned, he looked up and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You know, God is the only one that can receive your spirit. When he went into the, to the, to the guy that was, came down through the rafters and he was on the uh, release through the roof, he says, he says, your sins are forgiven. And they freaked out because you know who can forgive sins? God. But he says, look, to prove that I can forgive sins, get up and walk. But as we get back to Paul's argument, one, I want you to recognize that Paul never doubts the importance of the Jews to God. But in fact, they actually played a massive role in the plan of salvation. The interesting thing that we read through these things is salvation actually already belonged to them. Verse 4, it says that they already belonged to the Father. And not only that, in verse 5, we see that Jesus was born through the lineage according to the flesh through the Jews. They were, played a huge portion of salvation. And as we all know, Jesus himself was a Jew. And Paul was willing to give it all up, everything that he had before, to give up his salvation, not to make God change his mind. What, what he's saying here when he says, I would be a curse that they would all know is not to say, God, just change your mind and let them in, but rather that they would have their eyes opened up to see that salvation was already theirs if they would just receive it. For them to open their eyes and receive what was freely given to them since the beginning. But in spite of all these blessings, in spite of all of these things, Israel ended up failing. And when Jesus appeared, they rejected him, and not only that, they crucified him. And this isn't just Paul pointing the finger either. It could be easy to think that Paul's just pointing the finger. But he's not because he played a huge role in this. Paul wasn't always a Christian. He persecuted the early church and early Christians. He held up the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen. He's not pointing the finger. He realizes he was right there with them. But he wants his brothers and sisters to see that they already have this if they would just receive it. And then in Romans 9, 6 through 8, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are accounted as offspring. For that is what the promise said. About this time next year, I'll return and Sarah will have a son. This is not working as well as I had hoped. Ah, standing up just hurts my arm. Hallelujah. The reality is, is that the Jews were and still are God's chosen people. And there's not a promise that he made to them that he's not going to keep. And they still have a plan and purpose. He didn't put them by the wayside. Like the last verses we just said, they were given the covenant, the law, the promise, the temple, and even Jesus is from their lineage in the flesh, but they rejected him and they crucified him. And the truth is, is that many people reject Jesus even still today. The scripture, and I forget where it's at, but where it talks about that you reject him and, and crucify to him anew isn't speaking of the fact that we actually send him to the cross again because Jesus went to the cross once. It was done. It was finished. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. But what it's referring to is that when we reject Jesus, we're having the same attitude as those who have sent him to the cross, the same uh, state of mind as those who rejected Jesus for who he was. 
But the reality is, is that even if the Jews failed, even if they didn't recognize, all of them didn't recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, and they rejected him and crucified him, does this mean that God's word has failed? And obviously the answer is no. Because the truth is, is God is faithful no matter what we do with his word. And that was true for them, and that's true for us today. If we don't believe that healing is ours in Christ, if we refuse to accept that promise, it doesn't mean that God is not faithful. It doesn't mean that his word isn't true. The truth is, is that by his stripes we are healed. Even if we don't receive it, it doesn't mean God's word's not faithful. The reality is, is the Jews are not so different than us. It's one thing that I'm always careful when I'm reading the scriptures is I don't want to put myself in a position where I'm thinking to them, man, how could they do something so dumb? It's so obvious. How could they, they act like that? How could they live like that? Because God quickly points out, you mean how you do sometimes? How many times have we missed out on God's best for us because we lacked patience or completely disregarded his word? How many of us are missing out on financial freedom and blessing because we disregard his word where he says, test me in this? And Malachi says, test me in this. But so many of us disregard his word and we wonder why we're struggling financially. How many of us won't even pray for a headache? Because we don't really believe that God heals. So we miss out on his word. Church, if you can't believe God for a headache, how are you going to believe him to cure cancer or diabetes or anything other that's major? If you can't believe, if you can't lay hands on yourself and say, by his stripes I am healed and move on with your life and trust that he has healed your simple headache, how can you move on? And I uh, recognize the irony as I stand up here with my arm in a sling. (laughs) I ain't got it figured out all the way either, folks. I'm walking just like you, but I do know that when this happened, when I went over on my shoulder, when I put my hand up, the bone was up like this far out of my shoulder. And I immediately began to speak in tongues and pray over my shoulder. And by the time I got to the hospital, the bone was flat again. And I told the doctor, I said, hey, when I got my shoulder, I said, that's weird. It's not up like it was. I said, 30 minutes ago, the bone was sticking out like this, and he gave me a very weird look. So then I went ahead and got x-rays done, and he come back, and he says, well, it's not broke, it's a separation, and he said, well, uh, maybe your body just didn't like it dislocated like that, so it put it back. And I said, well, no, I don't think so. I think because as soon as it happened, I began to praying and speaking in tongues, and I believe God made a, did some massive healing in it. I think it was a lot worse. I know it was because my bone doesn't stick out like it did at that time. God is faithful. Why he didn't heal it all the way, I don't know. Maybe he's still working. The thing is, with faith and patience, we receive the promises. But the reality is, is that whether God completely heals the ligaments or I just get back to normal without it, God is going to heal it. I will be back to normal. And you'll get to have me up here pacing around and walking out and around you like I used to do. Instead of being stuck in this thing. But we lack patience or we disregard his word and we miss out on so much in our lives. We don't go to the healing meeting because we're sick. I've seen that. 
We're having a we're having healing meetings. Like we're doing a healing crusade and people can't make it because they're sick. I think you're missing the point. Why don't you come here and get not sick? We miss out on God's promises because we disregard him. There was a story that was told of a man who was crossing a desert in the days of pioneers and he ran into trouble and was dying of thirst when he spotted a pump near an abandoned shack. And he had no water to prime the pump, but he noticed a jug of water near the pump with a note attached, and it read, There is just enough water in this jug to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. This well has never gone dry, even in the worst of times. Pour the water on the top of the pump and pump the handle quickly. And after you've had a drink, refill this jug for the next man who comes along. What would the, dying, the man dying of thirst do? To follow the instructions and prime the pump without first taking a drink would be an exercise of the kind of belief that the Bible speaks of. Bible belief, biblical belief requires that one stake his life on the truth of the promise. If the man follows the instructions, he takes the chance of pouring out all the water and getting none to drink if the pump fails. So he must trust that the message is right. He must act in belief without first receiving, and he must trust in the truth of the promise. God's promises are always reliable. But they'll not help us unless we believe on them and act on them. The reality is, as the scripture says, that all the promises are yes in him. And we see this all the time. We see, I mean, you look through scripture where people are are making what would seem to be foolish decisions. Do you remember when they were, uh, Elijah, Elijah, I don't remember which one. I think it was Elijah. They uh, were up on the, uh, with all the prophets of Baal, and they're in the middle of a drought. And what, is, what does the prophet say? Build a fire and pour water on it. See, most people, when they're reading it, they don't think about that much. They think, oh, they're just making the water wet. He's just making the wood wet, so that way it really proves that it's God. But you don't recognize they didn't have any water. They were in a drought, and they just poured out all of their water. That was a sacrifice that didn't make any sense. But they trusted God. The prophet trusted God, and he called rain back, and it rained that very day. So much so that they had to scoot off that mountain before they got caught on a flash flood. I know in my own life, when I was a young believer, when we decided that we were going to give faithfully, we were going to give no matter what, no matter what happened, there were times we'd look at our checkbook and we were going to tithe or we were going to pay rent. So we wrote both checks because we decided to trust God no matter what. And it was always amazing how it always worked out. I can think of two instances specifically. One of them that, I, that happened that I, that I remember is that we, we wrote both checks and for whatever reason, and I can't tell you, well, I can tell you why it was God. I don't know how we made it work out on the back end, but our rent check didn't clear for like two weeks for some reason. Normally, we pay the rent check, it clears like the next day. But for some reason, our check didn't clear, and neither of the checks bounce because God is faithful. And another time, we did the same thing. Looked at our checkbook and said, well, we can either tithe or we can pay rent. So we paid both of them. And that was right about the time. Nobody knew when exactly it was coming. But you remember Bush did the, uh, the incentive to everybody and, and everyone got those tax checks. Right when that happened. And once again, our checks didn't bow. God is faithful if you will just trust him, even when it doesn't make any sense. Even when it doesn't 
it seems crazy and you will be blessed beyond measure. But the problem is, is that we must trust God enough to obey him. Trust him enough to wait on him while he goes on fulfilling his promises in his perfect time. And if God's chosen people, the physical lineage of Abraham rejected salvation, does that mean that God's word failed? No, just like when we don't receive God's promises in our life, it's not that that his word failed, it's just that we don't trust him at his word. The truth is, is that the promises did not come to those who were born of Abraham. Abraham had two sons, and they both didn't receive the promise. Jews are descendants from Isaac, which was Sarah's son, and Ishmael's son, or I'm sorry, Hagar's son, Ishmael. They didn't receive the promise. They didn't receive the covenant, yet they were both the lineage of Abraham. Receipt of the promise had nothing to do with being a physical descendant of Abraham. And for today, when we talk about receipt of the promises and receipt of salvation, it has nothing to do with where we came from, what we've done, the works that we performed, how many little old ladies we've helped across the street. It has everything to do with his promise for us and placing faith in him. Receipt of the promise relies on two things for the Israelites, that they be chosen and that they keep the covenant. All of Ishmael's lineage is a physical descendant of Abraham, but they weren't partakers of the promise. And he continues on in verse 9, 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father, forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's promise of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Here we find another example of God making a choice according to what he deemed appropriate. Of these two babies, only one was chosen. Some things to notice is that this was done before they were born. So what that means is this had nothing to do with their performance. It had nothing to do with their conduct or their actions. The point that Paul is making here is not that God chooses some and rejects others. The point that Paul is making is is that God is the one who gets to choose. So many people have used this as an argument saying that no, uh, God only has salvation available for certain people when the reality is that salvation is available to everyone. And we don't get to pick who it's available to. The Jews didn't get to pick, and we certainly don't get to pick. The Jews were arguing that the Gentiles could not be included. The Jews were arguing that, that salvation was for them, and we know that salvation was from the Jews, but it wasn't strictly for the Jews. And if you read and study Scripture, you'll see that actually that salvation, the, to include the entire world, the plan of salvation always included the entire world. Gentiles and Jews alike. The Jews would argue that the Gentiles cannot be included, but Paul argues, who are you to tell God who can be included in his plan of salvation? The other thing we have to note that this actually isn't referring to two individuals. When they're talking about Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, he's talking about nations, not people, not individuals. The scripture that Paul is quoting is Genesis 25, 23, and it says, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided, and one shall be stronger than the other, and the other shall serve the younger. 
Esau never physically served Jason in person, but the nation formed from his seed did often serve the nation from Jacob's seed. It wasn't about the individual. He's actually referring to... What are you laughing at, Willis? Oh, Jacob's all right. <laughs> served the nation. They often served the nation from Jacob's seed. Malachi 1, 2 through 3 is where he's quoting there. He says, I have loved you, says, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? It's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. Once again, we're referring to nations because the truth is, is that God does love us all individually. And he doesn't hate either Esau or Jacob. We also have to understand that when we're reading these things in the Bible that sometimes the word used don't work in the same way that we think about them. And this thing is driving me bonkers. There we go. You guys remember in, when Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother and his wife and children and brothers, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Do you know that it doesn't mean you actually have to hate your mother? What he's talking about is in contrast, your love for Jesus should be so strong that in contrast, your love for your mother, your father, your wife, your children would almost appear to be hate. But it's not that you hate them. It's a contrast thing. And I think that's the same type of stuff we're dealing with here. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. He didn't hate them individually. The truth is, is that God loves every single one of us. And then he wants us all to be saved. And there's not some subset of people that are not saved. How do I know this? Because in Second Peter he says, I don't wish any to perish. I don't wish any to perish. You guys know what the Greek word actually translates there for any? It means I don't want any to perish. I stole that line from Dr. Leon yesterday. The reality is, is that, that God loves us all. He wants us all included. We've all been predestined. We've all been elected. Some of us reject our election. Romans 9, 14 through 16 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. The question remains, is God unjust for choosing one nation over another? But the reality is that election is always a matter of grace. If God acted based only on self-righteousness, no one could be saved. If that was what we got in with, was self-righteousness, no one can be saved. Grace is always, election is always a matter of grace, Him choosing. And it's not unrighteous to extend grace to someone and not to another. That's something we have to get our heads wrapped around. If we decide to go and donate money or food to the Marana Food Bank, but we don't have enough to give to the Tucson Food Bank, does that mean that we're unrighteous because we were unfair and only gave to the Marana Food Bank? It's not unrighteous to extend grace to someone and not another. We're not behaving unrighteous if we help someone out, but we don't help the whole world out. The truth is, is that humans have a weird way of thinking about this and fairness and how all that works. Did you know that if you give a man 10 $1 bills and say to him, you have to give at least one of these dollars to another, 
But the amount is the man's choice, and he can keep the rest. People will always make a mathematically weird choice. If I give you $10 so you can give as much as you want to somebody else, but you do have to give at least $1 away, most people with this idea of fairness will give $5 to somebody else and keep 5 because that's fair. We both have the same amount. But it's a mathematically ignorant choice because to be the, the best possible outcome for both people would be to give $1 away because the person that had none now has a dollar, so he's doing way better off than he was before. And the person that had to give away only gave away one, so his, what happened negatively to him is negatively to him has been diminished. That's the mathematically sane way to do it, but we have this idea of fairness in our head, and we try to tell God what we think is fair who we should have compassion on, who we should have mercy on, and we try to tell God how it should work. But the truth is, is that our, God, our ways are not God's ways, and the choice will always be His. It's kind of like the parable of the workers who worked different lengths of time for the, for the day, for the same wage in Matthew 20, 1 through 16. And if you recall, they went out, and, and he needed some workers. So he said, he went to the first group and said, come work in my, my, my uh, vineyard for the day, and I'll, I'll pay you a full day's wage. And then at lunchtime, he found another group of people, and he says, come work in, in, my, in my field, and I'll pay you. And then at the end of the day, he found some more workers, and he said, come work in my field, and I'll pay you. So when he got to the end of the day, <clears throat> he goes ahead and and he walks up to the people that had only worked a couple hours, and he gave them a full day's page. And the people up their line were like, man, if they only worked an hour, and he gave them a full day's page, what is he going to give me? But then he got to the people that only worked a half day, and he paid them a full day's wage. And then he got to the people that worked the entire day, and he paid them a full day's wage. And then they got upset. And this is what it says in, in Matthew twenty thirteen through 16. After they got upset, he said, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no, no wrong. Did you not agree with me for denarius, one day's wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. See, the reality is here is that if God wants to include the whole world, not just the Jews, if he wants to include the Gentiles as well into his plan of grace, his plan of salvation, who are we to say that he is being unjust? Who are the Jews to say that he was being unjust? Did he hurt the Jews by including the Gentiles? He didn't. But there were many who were upset and felt slighted. But I want to make it clear as we're going through this is that while we recognize that God has the ability to do whatever he wants, he's God, and I'm not. So he can do what he wants. But the reality is this argument is not an argument of exclusion. So many people will say that some are excluded, some are included, but this argument, particularly if you look at the one that, that Jesus spoke of, was about inclusion. He says the Jews may have been there from the beginning, but if the Gentiles come in later, if he wants to give them the same wage, that's up to him. Just like the person who receives Jesus on their deathbed, we can't be upset and go, but God, I served you my whole life. How come they got in by just saying yes at the very end? We don't get to choose. God does. But this is an argument of inclusion, not exclusion. Like I said in 2 Peter, he says that he does not want any to perish. All are included in this election. And we're going to go ahead and conclude here in verse 17 through 18. It says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, 
and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. As we conclude today, we'll see that Paul is quoting from Exodus 33, 19. And basically what he's continuing to argue is it is not man who gets to choose who God extends grace to, but it is God himself. And God chose Moses and the Israelites over the Egyptians as well. There was definitely a choice of nations in that section. And it had nothing to do with their performance because both Moses and Pharaoh were both sinners. They were both even murderers. Yet Moses and his people as a result received God's mercy and compassion and Pharaoh was lost. And God raised up Pharaoh to show his power, it's true. But Pharaoh made the choice in how that power was to be shown. Fifteen times it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened in that, that section in Exodus. Sometimes it says that he hardened his own heart, and sometimes it says that God hardened it. And I look at that and I, I recognize that when, when God is hardening Pharaoh's heart, as much like when a parent hardens their kids' hearts. Did you know you've hardened your kids' hearts before? And what that, what I, when, I, when I think about this, what I'm seeing is it's like when you tell your kid to go clean their room and they don't want to do it, so they get all mad and they storm off. It could be said that you have hardened your, their hearts, even though you've done nothing except for tell them to clean their room. It could be said that you harden their hearts by you making them go do that. So I, I believe that's what the Scripture is saying, is that sometimes he decided on his own, and sometimes he hardened his heart as a result of God saying, saying no, let my people go. But the reality is, is that Pharaoh had plenty of opportunity to repent. It didn't have to end the way that it ended. And even though Moses and the Israelites were ultimately chosen, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had an opportunity for inclusion since the beginning. The truth is, is that the Jews were tasked to ministering and evangelizing to the, to the, to, to the Gentiles long before Jesus came around. They were supposed to be including them in as well. The idea of election in the body of Christ is not one of inclusion, but it's or exclusion, but one of inclusion. This idea that God gets to choose and it's up to him is, is not to say that some people are chosen or some are not. It's, it's really for us to realize that we don't get to pick who is chosen and who is not. It's so we can say that just because someone doesn't meet our ideal standard of what a Christian looks like, that we can't say, no, we really shouldn't offer salvation to them because the truth is God gets to choose, not us. And if God has made salvation available to everyone, to those that we consider good and worthy, and to those we consider unworthy or even unlovable, who are we to tell God that he's wrong? Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.